our required disclaimer. Our lectures are supported by our national organization. We're just one branch of Ratio Christi National, but not everything that we say here is necessarily endorsed by them. So if we end up going into some heresy or something, which we will be doing today, then that is not to be seen as an endorsement from the national organization. We're just here to discuss and think about this stuff. So if you didn't get a handout, we I assume everyone did, but just in case, we got a QR code right there if you want to scan it, just have a digital copy. All right. So I want to start today's meeting off a little bit differently than we normally start off our meetings by reading a passage from the Bible. This year, this semester rather, we've been talking about objections to the gospel. The gospel is this idea that humanity has fallen from God's grace, fallen from perfection, but because God loves us, he sent his son Jesus Christ as our redeemer to be born of a woman, be, you know, in human flesh, and die, be buried, and be raised again so that we can be atoned with God again, and so that we can have our sins forgiven and hope of eternal life. Jesus calls all of us to repent of our sins so that we can join his kingdom. So the gospel, there are four gospels. Three of them are the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And in all three of these gospels, there is a certain dialogue called the Olivet Discourse that we're going to discuss today. And it's a really interesting thing because it brings about a lot of there's a lot of confusing aspects of it, and it's often been called the smoking gun for why Christianity isn't true. So we're going to read that today. It, again, occurs in all three Gospels, all three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We're going to be reading specifically the one from Mark chapter 13, uh, and we're going to be trimming it down a little bit. We're not going to read the whole thing because it's pretty long. The entire thing is printed in the handout as well as the Discourse According to Matthew, which will come up later in the presentation. So let's go ahead and start. So as Jesus came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign that these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead you astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places, there will be famines, and these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Skipping ahead a few verses. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas for women who are pregnant, and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now, and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders 
to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all of these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. So what do y'all think about this passage? What are your first impressions? Kind of spooky. Yep. <laughs> I should get rid of sleeping forever. Get rid of sleeping forever. That's. That is what he says. Seems seems to be what he's implying. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what else? Seems like he's predicting the end of the world within, I would say, forty years of his death. End of the world within forty years. Yeah, in the generation of those who were alive at that time. So this is a really tricky passage, and it brings about the question that we're going to be discussing today. Was Jesus a failed prophet? So to give you a quick summary of what we're going to go through today, many people object that since Jesus predicted that he would come during the lifetime of his disciples, and since he tied very closely his second coming with the destruction of the temple, the gospel is invalid or unreliable since he has not come back yet. Another thing we're going to talk about is when you're trying to discuss difficult passages with a skeptic, it's often not enough to simply show that one particular interpretation is logically coherent. You have to show that that interpretation is actually a good or a likely interpretation of what you're reading, is likely to be what was actually meant by the author. And lastly, this question of was Jesus a failed prophet and what this discourse means has been around for a really long time, and there are multiple textually supported views that seek to resolve this apparent conflict, including the two we're going to talk about, futurism and preterism. So just to summarize the discourse that we went through, because that was pretty long-winded, Jesus comments that the temple will be destroyed, and his apostles ask about that event and the signs that are going to accompany it, and they tie this destruction of the temple to the end of the age. So Jesus then discusses a massive tribulation in which there will be false Christs and natural disasters and a bunch of people will flee and everything's crazy. And immediately after, this apocalyptic astrological phenomena will occur and you'll see the Son of Man, which is assumed to be Jesus, coming on the clouds. And these events that Jesus are, is describing are going to happen within the same generation. So those who are listening ought to stay on their guard. They ought to keep watch and stay awake. So what's the objection? To put it very clearly, Jesus claimed that he would return before this generation passed away, and he tied his return to the destruction of the temple. So Jesus' second coming, or in the Greek that's called the parousia, 
it did not happen within the lifetime of anyone there. Everyone who was alive when Jesus was there has now died. And it didn't happen when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem and the temple in the year 70 AD. So Jesus was wrong in his prediction. Now there are two ways that we can go about the objection from here. For one thing, we could just claim that Jesus made this prediction and it was invalid. Well, if his prediction was invalid, that kind of seems to invalidate his perfection and his Godhead, which are essential components to the gospel. So the gospel is invalid. Alternatively, we could just say that this Jesus' second coming is just a very fundamental aspect of Christianity. And if he was wrong in his prediction about that, then how can we trust the rest of the gospel and the rest of the faith? So either way, this shows that we shouldn't believe the gospel. What are y'all's thoughts? I mean, I think that's kind of a bold claim. Mm. Especially knowing Old Testament prophecy and a lot of the different like ways Ezekiel or other people will talk about things like that and the way prophets spoke. And their language is very similar to what Jesus uses, particularly in the end. Okay. So I just I think that's a very strong claim to say you're understanding what Jesus is saying that well. Mm. It is a pretty strong claim, and yes, we are going to talk about that prophetic language that he uses is, that he uses pretty soon. Anyone else? So it's not, you know, it's just a literal reading of it, that their objection is just to say that this generation meant, you know, that yeah, generation. that generation. That, you know, I, I, they're, they're taking it face value, I guess. Mm. Not, not a nuanced view or an interpretive view of, what, of a prophetic passage, so. Yeah. So these are all really good points, and I'm going to address that here. So just a quick note before we continue on with how we should understand it. These prophetic passages are really tricky to deal with because they're very vague and they tend to be very poetic in their language. So citing a failed prophecy as a disproof of the inspiration of the Bible or of God's perfection it's something that has to be done really carefully because the meaning of what's being said in a prophetic message is not always obvious. So this isn't a cop-out for Christians to just say, oh, it was a prophecy, so I should completely ignore this argument. We just have to be cognizant of the thing that we're discussing. We have to be able to discuss it well. So my main source for today's presentation is going to be R.C. Sproul's The Last Days According to Jesus. He talks about a few of what the different components of the discourse mean and a few different ways that people understand it. So how should we read this passage? Well, the prima facie reading is basically the literal interpretation. So the Son of Man's coming on the clouds parallels this prediction of Christ's second coming that we see in places like Acts chapter 1, verse 11, where it says, you will see the Son of Man come back down the same way as you saw him go. And it says that this generation shall not pass away. And that sounds like the parousia should have happened when Christ was, you know, had just recently passed and his disciples were still alive. So it seems to imply that he should have come in AD 70. So what are some of the Christian alternatives to this? So when we're discussing a difficult passage like this, before we move to the actual interpretations, we're starting with some different premises. So it can lead to a bit of a communication breakdown. And as we love to do with our communication breakdowns, we have our good friends Alvin the Atheist and Carol the Christian. So you can imagine Carol maybe saying something like, the passage doesn't have to be contradictory if this thing means this, and this thing means this, and this thing means this, and 
the time frame is different, then it just doesn't mean, Jesus didn't mean what it looks like he meant, and you're just reading it wrong. Well, that's not necessarily very helpful for Alvin, because then Alvin might say, sure, your reading of it might be logically valid, but why should I trust your interpretation of the passage over what it looks like it's obviously saying? So really what we're dealing with is that we're starting with different premises. For the Christian, we're basically starting with the assumption that the Bible is true. So all that's necessary for us to do is to show one possible logically coherent interpretation. And that shows that the Bible is just not necessarily wrong. But for the atheist, they're not starting with that premise. They might not believe that the Bible is true at all. They probably don't, you know, as, as a whole. So if there's an interpretation that would prove the Bible wrong, but that seems way more likely than another interpretation that would make it right, then the assumption would just be that the Bible is wrong. And that's totally fine for their point of view. So that means that the Christian, they can't just provide a logically coherent reading of the text or reading of the text that kind of pieces everything together and kind of makes sense, but seems a little bit contrived. They have to show why their interpretation is a good reading of the text. So what do y'all think are some good ways to do that? I think at least one thing I didn't think about earlier, but uh, Jesus talking about, you do not know when the time will come, like a man going on a journey when he leaves, and then he goes, um, stay awake, you do not know when the master of the house will come. Uh, there's a lot of parts in there where it's kind of emphasizing that there's this unknown aspect of when some of these things mm-hmm. will happen. That uh, Initially, like on the just first way that I guess atheist is kind of taking it is, well, it should have been done by 70 AD. It's like if Jesus was saying you're not going to know the exact time or hour, then something about that, that reading seems off. That's true. So yeah, we should pay attention to every part and try and understand what some of these more difficult parts might mean. So, you know, there's clearly a lot of unknowns in there that we should pay attention to. Uh, what about you? Based on my reading of, of Matthew and Mark, mm-hmm. it seems like a fair amount could hinge on precisely what is meant by this generation. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how much ambiguity there is in that term, but that could be a huge sticking point one way or the other. Yeah, so trying to understand what the meaning of different words are. So one of the ways that we might know what these different words mean and the way that we can know what the author meant by them is to make sure that it harmonizes well with the rest of scripture. So if you're reading something like this generation, you might try and find other passages in the Bible where this generation means the same thing. Does this generation have to mean a chronological time frame? This specific group of people that is alive right now. And that's one of the things we'll go through. So that's one of the things that we can use to show that a certain interpretation is more likely, is that it harmonizes well with the rest of scripture. If an interpretation harmonizes well with the rest of scripture, then it's probably more likely to be true than one that just is a whole new thing. Another criterion we might want to look for is parsimony. So we might want to look for a passage that, or an interpretation rather, that is more simple than another one. So again, if, a, and if an interpretation seems really contrived and you're putting a whole lot of different things together and there's one that's a lot simpler, the one that's a lot simpler is probably going to make more sense. We have Occam's razor. Don't have an explanation that's way too long for something that can be explained simply. So a simpler explanation is probably better than a more complex explanation.
So what are our options? Well, one of our options, and probably the most common one, is futurism. So the basic definition of futurism is that the Olivet Discourse is talking about multiple different events. And some of these events that it's talking about are to happen in the distant future. So for example, some parts of the Olivet Discourse are talking about the destruction of the temple. Other parts are talking about the actual end of the world and Christ's second coming. So futurist interpretation or futurist interpreters argue that there are multiple different parts of the discourse. So for example, this is what Dr. Peter Lange has to say about it. In harmony with the apocalyptic style, Jesus exhibited the judgments of his coming in a series of cycles, each of which depicts the whole futurity, but in such a manner that with every new cycle, the scene seems to approximate to and more closely resemble the final catastrophe. So he divides it up into a number of cycles. So the first few verses, verses 4 through 14, are talking about just the general course of the world. Then verses 15 through 28 discuss the destruction of Jerusalem. Then 29 through 44 talk about the end of the world. And the rest of those verses, 45 and onward and on into the next chapter, are different parables and metaphors that talk about Christ's judgment of different groups of people. So for example, his judgment of the church and his judgment of apostates and other groups. And again, this is in Matthew. We didn't really read Matthew at the beginning of this, but that whole thing's in the handout. So one of the issues with Dr. Lange's approach is that in the section ostensibly about the end of the world, Jesus says, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So is he trying to imply that this generation won't pass away until Christ comes again his second time? Not necessarily. So in the Greek, generation doesn't have to mean a specific chronological group of people. For example, in Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 3, Jeremiah writes, Death shall be preferred to life by all the remnant that remains of this evil family, that's Ginea, in all the places where I have driven them, declares the Lord of hosts. So the common characteristic of this family that Jeremiah is talking about isn't their specific time frame, but it's their evil mindset. So the word might also refer to the literal current generation, the actual time frame generation in its literal sense, but not in the sense that they will be around for the second coming. So here's what Calvin has to say about that. Calvin writes, the meaning therefore is, this prophecy does not relate to evils that are distant and which posterity will see after the lapse of many centuries, but which are now hanging over you and ready to fall into one mass so that there is no part of it which the present generation will not experience. So then, while our Lord heaps upon a single generation every kind of calamities, he does not then by any means exempt future ages from the same kind of sufferings, but he only enjoins the disciples to be prepared for enduring them with all firmness. So what Calvin says here is that within the lifetime of the disciples, it's not necessarily that Christ was going to come again, but within that lifetime, they were going to understand the harsh truth of what he said was going to come to pass. And this is true. In their lifetime, the temple was destroyed and Jerusalem was destroyed. And this whole world that they knew was gone and ruined. So by the end of their lifetime, they knew that what Jesus had said was going to come to pass. And they understood this harsh truth. So this understanding of generation yeah, it can seem a little bit contrived. But with a prophetic passage like this, understanding it apart from its literal 
prima facie meaning can be pretty useful. To put it in another way, parsimony isn't quite as important a criterion in a prophetic passage as it might be with others. Its ability to harmonize with scripture is what's more important. And with that understanding in mind, the futurist interpretation, though there are a few parts that seem a little difficult, is a completely valid approach. And it's a very common one, too. It's used very commonly, especially in the Reformed tradition. What are y'all's thoughts on it? Yes, Sam Blackman. So the claim that the uh, disciples are going to undergo a particular set of trials, or I guess a tribulation, Mm-hmm. And then for it to say, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, then all the tribes mm-hmm. of earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. So, uh, sorry, mm-hmm. going. Yeah. This seems like uh, the conclusion of any given set of tribulations ought to be a return. Yeah. So you're getting at a good point, and I'm going to address that here really shortly. But the passage does seem pretty homogeneous. It doesn't seem like there's really a great dividing line between what's about the distant future and what's about the near future in AD 70. Now, it is a prophetic passage, so understanding the time frame, the time frame can be kind of symbolic in the way that it's working. So the immediately after might not necessarily mean immediately after in its literal sense. It's a prophecy, so we can't necessarily understand it literally. But that is a good point. Futurism does have a lot of pros. It has a lot of advantages. So for one thing, it's pretty literal in terms of the words themselves, and it harmonizes pretty well with the rest of scripture. Uh, And in addition, there are certain parts of the discourse that do seem to indicate that some of the things will take place in the future. So for example, one of the conditions, we didn't read this, but it's in Mark chapter 13, verse 10. Jesus lays down the condition that the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. Now, to assume that this was going to happen within the lifetime of the disciples is a pretty bold claim, because there are a lot of nations, and for that to happen before AD 70, so in just 40 years, that's a pretty bold claim. You could argue that Paul shared the message to a lot of nations, but it was certainly not all of them. So, you know, there's... Considering that he was killed on the Ostian Way, right? On his way to another nation that yeah. he hadn't reached yet. So he didn't share it to all nations. So there are some good indicators that it could be in the future. But even with those indicators, one of the major disadvantages of futurism is that this passage is so homogeneous. It doesn't seem like there's a good dividing line between what's the end of the world and what's the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. So dividing it in this way can seem a little bit contrived. So what's the alternative? Well, one possible alternative, and it came around in about the 17th century, I want to say, is preterism. So preterism is basically the opposite of futurism, whereas futurism was there are some things that'll happen in the future and some things that'll be in the past. Preterism is the idea that everything described in the Olivet Discourse has already happened, and it was fulfilled in AD 70. So preterism is based on the observation that Sam just made, that the Olivet Discourse contains a very homogeneous prophecy regarding the tribulations and all of this apocalyptic stuff and Christ's second coming. 
is very homogeneous. And so preterism says, no, that's accurate. This homogeneity is because all of these things are about the same time period. So here are a few of the different principles of preterism. So the Great Tribulation that's talked about in this discourse is strictly about the siege of Jerusalem. And it's not about any kind of end of the world eschatological period. I know there's a lot of talk about the Great Tribulation in terms of an end of the world thing. And there's you know, tribulationism and all of that. Preterism just says this Great Tribulation already happened. The end of the age refers to the end of the Jewish age or the Jewish dispensation rather than the end of the world. So the end of the Jewish age, meaning that's, you know, the end of this Jewish religion and of the temple and of that lifestyle. And we're moving into this Christian era. And one of the bigger ones is that the coming or parousia of the son of man refers to God's coming in judgment upon Jerusalem. Now you might say, okay, well, this sounds, that's a pretty bold claim to say that his coming was not a literal coming. Well, this is where the harmony comes in. We do have other passages in the Bible where the word coming is used in this sense. So for example, in Micah chapter one, verses three through five, Micah writes, for behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and he will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth and the mountains will melt under him and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. So this is another prophecy of God coming down in judgment upon people. But it's not talking about, you know, an advent. It's not talking about the rapture or anything like that. It's God coming to judge people in a metaphorical sense. So with that in mind, this understanding of the meaning of parousia makes sense. So what about all of this dramatic and apocalyptic language? It sounds like it's talking like a lot more than just about this historical event. Well, for one thing, the conditions surrounding the siege of Jerusalem were really terrible, not just for this culture, but just in general. There were a ton of terrible things that happened. So there was one report that during this siege, the people inside were so hungry that one mother cooked her child and ate it and offered it to other people because of how hungry they were. So if you're thinking about a bad and desperate situation, this is just the epitome of that. And in addition, for the Jewish people, culturally speaking, this temple and Jerusalem was the center of their world. This is just where they were. This was the center of their religion and for that to be destroyed was basically tantamount to the destruction of the world. It was the end of the world, basically. So here you can see a model of the temple on the left side. And then on the right side, that's from the Arch of Titus in Rome. And you can see the Romans carrying away things like the menorah and other artifacts from Jerusalem and from the temple. As you can see, all of this cultural heritage was just robbed. So it kind of makes sense for such dramatic language to be used. Okay, but what about the, the stars falling from the heavens and the moon turning to blood? I mean, this, this is more than that. Well, this kind of language also makes sense if you look at Old Testament prophecy. I, was it, Katie, did you point that out earlier? Yeah. So with respect to Old Testament prophecy, that makes sense. 
Here we have a passage from Isaiah, where Isaiah writes, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. Therefore I will make the heavens tremble, and the earth will be shaken out of its place, at the wrath of the Lord of hosts, and the day of his fierce anger. So this kind of language was used in prophecies of destruction in the Old Testament. So it makes sense that this kind of language would be used for a prophecy of destruction in the New Testament. So what are y'all's thoughts on preterism? There are parts of it I like more, I think, than futurism. Yeah. Uh, I'm not quite sure on its understanding of the age, but I especially or think that it's important to try to interpret passages how the original hearers would have understood it. So mm -hmm. if you're thinking about Jews and Jesus talking to the Jews, and their minds are filled with the apocalyptic literature of the Old Testament and their prophecies, then that's going to be the immediate way that they see it. Yeah. Well, and you do have to bear in mind, like you said, the people who were listening. Remember back to the very beginning of the discourse, even before Jesus started talking about it. The apostles' question wasn't, when will the temple get destroyed? It, will, it was, when will the temple get destroyed and what's the sign of the end of the world? So it kind of makes sense in that regard. They tied those two things together. So thinking about it from their point of view, this interpretation kind of makes sense. Anyone else? All right. So there are two flavors of preterism, if you will. The first one is full preterism. Full preterism is the idea that all New Testament eschatology, so everything prophesied in the New Testament, was fulfilled in AD 70 with the destruction of the temple. Partial preterism, on the other hand, says that the Olivet Discourse was fulfilled during that time, but there are still parts of New Testament eschatology that are yet to come. So to go more into detail, full preterism asserts that the parousia happened with the destruction of Jerusalem and that there will be no future second coming. In this view, there's no future eschatology. So there's no bodily resurrection of the dead. That can't happen since that would be in the future. Nor can there be a future day of judgment. So on, for full preterists, they believe that the resurrection is a purely spiritual resurrection and that the rapture is a purely spiritual one or a metaphorical one that occurred in AD 70 with the destruction of Jerusalem. Partial preterism asserts that no, there will still be a second future advent. There are just two parousias. There's one that happened in AD 70, the coming of judgment on Jerusalem like we talked about, and another that will happen in the more traditional sense at the end of the world. And so people like Dr. Kenneth Gentry argue that passages like Acts 1.11, so you will see the Son of Man or you will see Christ return in the same way as he went up right after he ascended, passages like that clearly refer to a physical return in addition to the metaphorical one described in the discourse. So there's still a future day of judgment and a future bodily resurrection and a future second coming. What are y'all's thoughts on the two different views? Jackson. So with the full preterist view, how do we fit into that? Like, if the rapture happened 2,000 years ago, like, are we, are we in the matrix and we're just all the unsaved people trying to worry about 
Well, would why would the rapture have happened? I call dibs on being Nicholas Cage. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. What's the rapture? Well, the rapture. You know, the idea that. Okay. Yeah, because we do need to address that. Yeah. So the idea was that the rapture was when it said God will gather up His elect, and Ever so. Says, um, where does it say? Give me a second. Mm -hmm. uh, Are you looking for rapture in the Bible? Because I've done that too. Two, <laughs> two, two, two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken. One will be left. Um, two men will be in the field. One will be taken. One will be left. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's where this kind of breaks down a little bit, this full preterist view that it already happened. It ends up being very metaphorical. The idea is that the resurrection, I mean, it's not a bodily resurrection, it's a spiritual resurrection. All of this stuff is very metaphorical. We might not understand exactly what it means. And to be honest, I'm not entirely sure what the explanation that they would give for that. But that's the basic principle, is that all of this stuff is spiritual, because we don't have any historical confirmation of an actual rapture or resurrection of, ma you know, mass resurrection of the dead that happened in the past. Yeah. Isn't there one passage that talks about that? Um, are you talking about the one? Matthew? Yeah. Mm. Oh, but granted, that's full of the rest of the apocalyptic uh, language, right, at that section, too. So it would fit well within their view as well. Yeah. So again, the argument for full preterists is everything that was they said was going to happen has already happened. I'm not sure exactly where we fit into that. And it, that raises some interesting questions. Maybe we just go to heaven, but it's not a resurrection of the dead or anything. I'm not sure what the viewpoint is. Also, on the topic of rapture, I mean, to be clear, many, many futurists are going to claim there is no such thing as a rapture. Mm -hmm. So to say that the preterist view fails because it doesn't ex fit with the view of the rapture, eh, that's a highly controversial uh, belief anyway. Yeah, so Ben? I think we just need to explain that the rapture is an invention that happened, whether right or wrong, uh, just a couple of centuries ago. And that, yeah. So what Andrew is not saying is not that Jesus won't come again physically. What the traditional understanding was is that Jesus will return again physically on Earth, but there was no idea of the rapture. Mm -hmm. now, is anybody want to be rapture red pilled real quick? <laughs> yeah, we're not talking about the left reason, behind stuff. You the know? reason that people believe that a rapture happened. So originally, in like I think the 1870s, something like that, there was a book written that held this view, but it wasn't very influential, and not many people believed it. Then there was a book written in the 1960s, somebody correct me if I'm wrong there, called The Late Great Planet Earth, which espoused that eschatological view, and it became popular in the United States at least. Not, this is not true like throughout the rest of the Christian world. Um, and then there was a third set of books called Left Behind, and now everybody believes this is a rapture. That's where those views come from. So whenever somebody before the uh, 19th century would have read something like uh, one me two men will be in the field, one will be taken, one will be left, two women will be grinding. They would assume, oh yeah, something happened to them. They, they so let's also say that's all about kind of, lots of people would die. And they felt sad for the ones that were snatched away. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> like, like, seriously, that's, that's bad. It says, because it compares it to the flood. Yeah. So the people being swept away are the people in the really yeah. bad, yeah. really bad situation. Yeah. They're not going somewhere you want to go. Right. So for now, 
for now, maybe we'll just refer to it as the resurrection. This idea that God's people, you know, the Christians and those people who have accepted his covenant, they will stay with him and the others will be in the lake of fire. So Sam, uh, yes. the, the preterists also, since they spiritualize Wait, everything. what? Huh? Understand. Yes. Um, <laughs> um, so do they, they don't believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus also? So I believe they might believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Full, full preterists? Full preterists. Full preterists. So I, there's probably a range of views on that. I don't I mean, think... because there are some Christians who don't oh, yeah. in the bodily res- resurrection. Mm. So that would go with if they want to spiritualize everything, right? Yeah, so that might play into what we'll talk about later where Paul connects Jesus' resurrection with the resurrection of others where he calls Christ the first fruits of the resurrection. I imagine there are probably a range of views on it. There are probably some preterists who would say that Jesus physically resurrected, but we won't. But there are probably also some, as you say, who would say that Jesus did not bodily resurrect, that it was all spiritual. It's a very uh, interesting viewpoint, to put it lightly. So what are the advantages and disadvantages of each one? So the advantages of full preterism is that it is a lot more simple. It's more parsimonious, to put it in the way that we talked about earlier. So rather than two separate parousias and two separate judgments and two separate days of the Lord, there's only one of each. And this makes things a lot simpler. So <laughs> Dr. Sproul provides this graphic in his book where we can see what each view believes. So full preterism believes that all of these things just happened once in AD 70, whereas partial preterism believes that most of these things happened, but also all of these things will happen in another sense at the end of the world. So. The resurrection, there's only one of those, and that's in the future. But the judgments, the parousia, and the day of the Lord, those will all happen twice. Once in AD 70, once in the future. So that's one advantage. The disadvantage of full preterism is that it's rather unorthodox. So it goes against a lot of sort of the general orthodox beliefs of Christianity. So for one thing, the Nicene Creed that was written in the 4th century AD One of the clauses is we believe that Christ basically will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. So this was written well after the temple's destruction, and it still supports a future judgment and a future coming. So it goes against the Nicene Creed, and it also goes against the Apostles' Creed, where it says that we believe in a resurrection of the body. A purely spiritual resurrection doesn't mesh well with that. So... It goes against these two very foundational creeds to Christianity, and so it's pretty unorthodox. Now, the full preterist response to this would typically just be, well, sure, it's not creedally orthodox, but most of them are Protestants. They don't think that the creeds are infallible or authoritative. They're just maybe helpful historical artifacts. So even if it's not creedally orthodox, they would say it's still biblically orthodox. Well, I mean, this still poses some problems. For one thing, it just goes against the general belief that Christians have held for centuries. But it also goes against scripture in a few ways. So scripture itself seems really strongly to indicate a bodily resurrection. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20, Paul is talking about the resurrection. And he says that Christ is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So he's saying that Christ... 
Christ's resurrection is a type of that which is to come, the antitype being our future resurrection. And so comparing Christ's bodily resurrection to some sort of spiritual resurrection in AD 70 doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So it doesn't mesh well with 1 Corinthians. And like I've pointed out a couple of other times, a physical return of Christ seems to be indicated in other parts of the Bible, like Acts chapter 1, verse 11. And so it doesn't really mesh well with the biblical view either. So if you're going to do preterism, it's probably safest to stick with partial preterism because you don't want to be a heretic. So as a whole, preterism has its advantages. For one thing, it just harmonizes well with the homogeneity of the whole passage. The passage seems to be talking pretty strongly about one continuous event, the destruction of the temple and the stars falling from the heavens and Christ's second coming. But each approach does have its individual disadvantages and it can lead to heresy if you're not careful. So in the end, we might not know what the correct reading of the scripture is, but we know that there are multiple views that all harmonize well with the rest of scripture and have varying levels of simplicity in some respects. And, you know, some might be more simple in some places and less simple in others. But either way, there are a number of textually supported and reasonable views for what the Olivet Discourse could mean. Any of y'all have any thoughts? I am curious, um, when or discussing this with an atheist, are we allowed? I mean, we can go back to the Old Testament as other documents and things that were around that might have influenced how Jesus was speaking for some of the language, mm. but do we need to actually go beyond that to other things, like maybe the Book of Enoch or other parts like that to justify this? Because um, I'm assuming most atheists will go, well, reconciling it with, it with Scripture means nothing because... Uh, you know, the rest of scripture may or may not be true, but that doesn't matter. It's what Jesus said, and they're still going to take it as, I guess, prima facie, their literal view must be true. Yeah, well, so I mean, I think we should bear in mind the whole objection here. It's not about whether what Jesus, you know, it's not about whether the rest of scripture is actually true. The objection is more of an internal one. It's Jesus, you know, according to the gospel, Jesus said these things, and so therefore, according to the gospel, Jesus made this invalid prediction and was a failed prophet and was not perfect. So it doesn't really matter for us whether the rest of scripture is true or not. The main argument that we're trying to make is that this passage does not disprove the truth of the Bible and of the gospel. But it could always be helpful to go back to other passages like the book of Enoch or other cultural things of the time to try and understand what people's thoughts may have been and how that might influence our interpretations. Any other thoughts? Jackson. I have something. It's not related to the preterism futurism discussion. For sure. Related to the discourse stuff that we've been discussing. Uh, yeah, so uh, what do you want to talk about? The abomination, desolation, and the stars falling from the sky type of stuff. Ah, uh, yes. Um, I wasn't planning on it, but we can definitely talk about that if you want to. The interpretation I've always heard of that is political revolution type of thing. Um, and so not necessarily like, you know, Jupiter crashing the Earth or something along those lines. Um, but the abomination of desolation is referenced in some other passage that is written. It's uh, the book of Daniel, right? It's in, yeah, it's in Daniel, I think. Because that right. that's actually what it says, I believe, in 
the Matthew, Matthew slide. Yeah, Daniel 9, 27, 11, 31, and 12, 11. So yeah, it says, you know, the abomination of desolation spoken about by the prophet Daniel. So. Which, when he says, let the reader understand, I'm sorry, but that's just lazy. <laughs> that worked on all my essays. You, you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you understand. Yeah. So he definitely does refer back to this passage in Daniel. And what I understand is that the preterist interpretation of this, and it probably works with the futurist interpretation too, is that this thing might represent the Roman sort of cult of emperor worship or the emperors coming into the temple. So I believe there was a time before the temple's destruction when a Roman emperor, perhaps Nero? Mm. But there was, yeah, so a Roman emperor who wanted a statue made of himself within the temple. So it would sort of be a desecration of the temple. And that is one way that we could understand this. So the abomination of desolation being this abomination of the statue of this Roman emperor, basically this false god, because that's what they were considered. They were deified after their death. So, you know, yeah. and I don't know that much about Old Testament prophecy, but it, seem, it seems like a lot of times when they're interpreted or explained, there is that partial preterist view that there's a there's a near fulfillment and a and mm -hmm. a, a far fulfillment. Yeah. You know, there there's a you know there's a depth to it that you know. Uh, yeah. That you can in, you can interpret it in in two ways, you know, near and far or near and future. Yeah, and that's sort of what uh, Dr. Lange talks about here, actually. In I the, think it would go with the partial yeah. terrorism, too, I think. It probably goes with both, because you can interpret it partially as about the current state and, you know, the near future and partially about the distant future. It would be partially indeed, but the fulfillment would be lighter. I mean, I see mm -hmm. it going, I see it here, but I also see it in your other, gra your other table there. Yeah. You know, I think that it goes with the partial you too because you know yes it's 80-70 but yes it's even more at the yeah. end of the world so I mean even though the views are opposite they're probably not mutually exclusive because the prophecy could definitely have multiple meanings so it could be that Jesus was talking about these things that would happen in the future but these things that are happening in the near future are a type of what's to come in the distant future this end of the Jewish world is analogous to the end of the whole world. So it's definitely not mutually exclusive. Uh, is there anything else? So at, at some point uh, in here, um, we talked, I think in both cases, in both mm -hmm. of the, the interpretations, we talked about interpreting the passage in the con whole context of scripture. Yes. Um, but, yeah, actually, on driving up here, I was listening to a podcast. Um, mm. And for some reason, there, a section of this podcast was like rapid-fire biblical interpretation of some of the words of Jesus, because they were dealing with some issue. But in doing that, they kept pulling from passages um, like pulling from Revelation and Genesis and saying, 
you know, this word was used here, and this word mm -hmm. was used here, so therefore they mean the same thing, and that solves this issue. In that case, they were taking literally something in Genesis and in Revelation, like the opposite ends of yeah, the, the how Bible. Opposite can you get? Um, but at a certain point, isn't you know this practice of interpreting in the full context of Scripture? Isn't that just to say um, adjusting your view until it doesn't contradict with anything? Like like contriving your view? Yeah. So I mean, you could talk about it in that sense. Um, so yeah, you can definitely contrive a view that still is harmonious with scripture, but that might not necessarily flow naturally. Like the point is that a view that, an interpretation that is true, if the Bible is true, is probably going to harmonize well with the rest of scripture. So, and there are different levels of that harmony. So you can take one word, like we dealt with with Ginea. You can take one word that might mean generation in the sense of people having the same mindset that's used in that sense maybe one or two other times in the Bible and try to apply it to this passage. But you have to try and find an interpretation that is likely and that is, you know, probably a good reading of the text. Uh, I, think, I think an important way to think about this is that there are two different tasks. When we're looking at this question, mm -hmm. there are two different and in some ways opposing things that we can do to deal with the text. We can do apologetics or we can do systematic theology, right? Mm -hmm. The goal of the systematic theology is just, is merely to find an interpretation that agrees with the rest of your systematic theology, what, whatever that is, mm -hmm. right? But the goal of apologetics is definitely not that. Because the systematic theology doesn't matter in the context of apologetics you're just dealing, broadly speaking, with the coherence of Christianity, right? Mm -hmm. Depending on what level the objection is. So I, I just think that's an important distinction to make because why, while you know, I might really care about the coherence between the Gospel and the Book of Daniel, um, in an apologetics context, that's not nearly so important, right? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I think there does have to be at least some harmony between apologetics and systematic theology, because you can come up with, this is a very simple interpretation of this passage, but it, if it's not going to mesh well with the rest of scripture or with other possible interpretations of scripture, then it's hard to argue that, you know, that view is really coherent. Well, I think my point is actually the opposite, that it's that the job of apologetics is more difficult. There's a higher bar. Mm. Because if you're doing systematic theology, all you have to do is, is have a view that's internally coherent. In apologetics, you have to have a view that is persuasive. Oh, yeah. Right? That, like, not only does it have to be internally consistent, but it, has, it actually has to kind of stand on its own, right? So just merely cohering with your systematic theology isn't enough to actually deal with the objection. Yeah, for sure. And that's kind of what I addressed with the Alvin and Carroll thing. It is more than just, you know, for the Christian, all we have to do is really find one possible, logically coherent understanding of the text. But if we are going to be engaging in apologetics, we need to make sure that, that, under, that our understanding of the text is one that 
we can argue fits well with the rest of scripture and is likely to be the correct reading of the text. So it is important to bear in mind what we're dealing with here. And yeah, apologetics is a harder task in that regard. There's more to it. Yes. Yeah, so one thing that we didn't talk about, and we talked about it at first, since this is a long time mm. issue that people have looked at. Yeah. And I think that even in the Bible, I think Paul ran into people who misinterpreted this Jesus sayings about this, right? Oh, yeah. Um, they were like not working. They were just saying Jesus is coming back very soon. And he's going, oh, wait a minute. No, that's not really right. So, I mean, even Paul was having to say some explanation of yeah. people's misinterpretation of, right? For sure. So, like in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, he gives this warning against these people who started being idle. And he says, Hey, well, when I came over to you guys, I worked. Not that I had to, but I wanted to be a good example for you guys. We shouldn't just stop doing what we're doing because Christ is coming soon. That might not be the correct interpretation of this passage. We also shouldn't stop what we're doing because Christ isn't coming soon. Yeah. That's probably a big, very big point of the passage. Mm -hmm. And so then another thing that happens is in, I want to say 1 Corinthians also, Paul encounters people who... Do, who think that the resurrection has already happened. People will use this as an argument against full preterism. They'll respond, well, P Paul's writing this before AD 70. But if we just consider it as sort of, if it still applies to us now, then that makes sense. There are a lot of ways to interpret this kind of esoteric thing that we're talking about of, you know, this eschatology and prophetic stuff is confusing. There's a lot of ways to interpret it, but we should still make sure that we're following scripture and trying to lead our best lives and not basing all of that off of the interpretation. Yes. So I guess for the purpose of um, arguing or discussing this more with an atheist, isn't it actually more fundamental we defend our method of reading ancient texts and uh, documents like this in general? Because what's com what comes down to is the objection itself is hinging on the fact that you read it in kind of a literal way and that you don't kind of pull in any of the metaphorical language, any of the other stuff, or the readings that are going to complicate it and make what Jesus is saying a lot more unclear. Because without those, without that fundamental, like, this is just literal and it doesn't seem to line up with what he literally said, so it must not have happened if he's a failed prophet. If you don't have that, if that view that that's how you should read or come to the text is not cogent, then in and of itself, whether or not we have our systematic theology right, we can simply say that that's a fundamental misreading of the text, and therefore the objection doesn't stand yeah. all on its own, without even having to have a clear understanding of you know futurism or preterism. Yeah, for sure. So like, prophecies are really difficult to interpret, and that is something that we have to address before we even get started. We have to read it in the context that it ought to be written. And that seems more like fundamental, as if we can just defend the fact that Heck, uh, prophetic passages are very com complex and confusing, and they use a lot of language that's not always literal. If we have that down, then their whole objection crumbles. Yeah, so I mean, that's true. But at the same time, it's not necessarily a cop-out for Christians to just say, well, it's a confusing passage, so I don't really know what it means. Because you could use that kind of thing to defend any prophecy that failed. You know, prophecies themselves are just not that helpful in apologetics in general. I think I talked with Zach about this the other day, but even if you're trying to use a prophecy to defend scripture, that might not necessarily be all that helpful because 
that prophecy, you might be ways. reading it wrong. It, it cuts both ways. It for apologetic purposes, if you're saying, yeah. well, it's really not good if we, you know. Yeah. So it's still important to analyze, but we just have to make sure that we understand what it is we're discussing. We can't talk about prophecies in the same way as we might talk about your interpretation of Second Chronicles or whatever, some, something that's very prosaic and literal. This is a very metaphorical and vague and poetic thing, and we have to understand how we're discussing it, but it can't just, we can't just say, uh, I completely dismissed this objection, I don't think that Jesus was talking about this and it's not worth discussing because it's prophetic. We just have to know what we're talking about. Might it be appropriate to say that the text is intentionally difficult because of uh, the subject, the, both the subject matter and the objective of what's being said because Jesus says that you will know neither the time nor the place. So yeah. this is the thing the thing which is being talked about in the discourse is also the thing which is said to have been obscured and be kind of imperceptible. Yeah, well, for sure, it's very tricky. And it's not just that we don't know the time and place. Jesus says, I don't know the time and place. Only the Father knows. So for us to try and understand what that time and place means, yeah, it is It is uh, intentionally, or it's, it's known to be very tricky. And that's very clear even within the passage. So that is something to bear in mind when we're talking about it. But not that that's just an accidental feature of the passage, but a necessary feature of the passage. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm not entirely sure about what the implications of that would be, but that's definitely true, that we might bear that in mind, that it's intentionally obscure, and we don't know exactly what he's talking about. I'm kind of extrapolating that from what I hear about Old Testament prophecy, which is, it was meant to obscure the plan of redemption from those who might be, who might have alternative agendas. Mm. That's interesting. I hadn't heard that argument before. I'm not quite sure. I feel like if I haven't heard that from Heiser, then I've heard that from... Him. Yeah, Heiser definitely says that. Heiser? Okay. So, then, so like things like Isaiah 53, and they were intentionally vague to make sure that other people wouldn't try and obstruct the plan of salvation? Perhaps. I mean, that could make sense because, you know, we say that God is omniscient, so he would try to organize these things and even these prophecies in such a way that his plan would still happen as planned and so that other things wouldn't obstruct it. You know, he and his divine wisdom can do that. What was that? Except Daniel. Daniel's perfect. Daniel's pretty great. (laughs) Yeah. Daniel's a lot of good stuff about it. And this one's the Persians. Thank you. Yep. (laughs) He's pretty clear about it. A lot of that stuff. And, you know, there's some stuff that's unclear in that, like the stuff that Jesus references here about the abomination of desolation. And the Son of Man, that's another thing that is talked about in Daniel. The Son of Man coming on the clouds is a reference from Daniel. It's often used to... More like leaving on the clouds, am I right? (laughs) From Acts 111. Oh, yeah. But, yeah, I mean, that's a... (laughs) Yeah, that's one... That is one of the things that we, people will actually use that coming of the Son of Man for, is as proof that God can take on human form, and it's as a way that people might have known to expect that from the Old Testament. So yeah, Daniel definitely has a lot of interesting stuff. Yeah, I, I do want to go back to what Katie said earlier, that this ultimately, these types of questions fundamentally come down to hermeneutics, right? Mm-hmm. 
which is, do you actually have a method for uh, trying to understand the text, or are you just ad hoc make, kind of mm -hmm. making things up? Um, and frankly, a lot of people are just ad hoc kind of making things up or Googling something on the internet, and as soon as they find something that sounds kind of like it gets rid of the problem, that's the way they decide to interpret the text with yeah. no real reason for it. And, and I think that's part of the reason why these types of arguments are uh, successful sometimes is because it's not just about being able to say, oh, that happened in the future, or oh, that already happened, or you know, whatever, you know, this word means something different. To, in order for that explanation to make sense to somebody, they have to understand what it means to actually interpret a text, right? Because I think a lot of people believers and non-believers alike have this idea that you should just be able to read it and then the, the first thought that pops into your head about it that's what it means mm -hmm. um, and while that's true if I'm reading like a newspaper article you know from a Houston newspaper in the last 10 years that's probably true because my mind is conditioned to do that but if I'm reading the Bible it's an entirely different way of reading. Yeah, and, and you're not—you're probably not reading the original words. And if you are reading the original words, like you're reading it in, in Greek, um, even then, you some of those words might not be the original words. So mm -hmm. If you haven't looked into that, you might not fully understand that aspect of things. And even when it is the original words, knowing exactly the context of those words and the meaning of those words is really difficult. Um, and so. It actually takes work to interpret. Um, yeah. Just reading it and seeing what the quote plain sense is does not help because there is no plain sense. The plain sense existed only for first century Jewish, probably, uh, you know, Koine Greek speakers, right? Yeah. And that's even if there is a plain sense to this prophetic passage, yeah. which is yeah, difficult. Maybe there's no plain sense at all. <laughs> yeah. Right? For sure. Like, the whole of Revelation. I guess that would be more, I guess, my original point is just historically speaking in the field of hermeneutics and the various ways that are done, rarely is the straight literal the way to go. Mm -hmm. For some passages, perhaps, but especially in apocalyptic literature, that's just not a, that's not a method most scholars and theologians use today to interpret passages or t writings like that. Not Not even just the Bible, but uh, pieces from Greek, Roman, uh, like that's why I'm mentioning that, you know, uh, Book of Enoch, which isn't mm. scriptural, or different parts of the Septuagint that aren't um, in either uh, canon, Catholic or Protestant. So if you look at things like that and go with what do these scholars and the professionals who read and study these ancient documents say, if your literal interpretation of them is not held by any major camp for something like this, then really the objection just falls right there. Yeah, and I mean, that kind of follows along with a common theme that I've seen in a lot of different uh, videos by skeptics where they'll talk about, well, you know, really the way that fundamentalists understand the Bible is the real way we should read it. The way this literal interpretation is the way that we ought to read the Bible because that's the most easy way to understand it. And that's just not necessarily true. There's so much that goes into understanding any given passage, literal or not, that to understand it in its proper sense, you really have to put in some work and think about it. It's not quite as black and white and cut and simple as it might seem.
All right. Well, thank you all.